The following program is being brought to you on the Green Talk Network. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit thegreentalknetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer. Welcome to Ocean Wanderers, Ocean River Sturgeon and Lampreys. My guest today is fish behavior biologist, Dr. Boyd Kennard. Thank you for taking time away from the sturgeon to talk on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Hello, Boyd. It's my pleasure, Ron. It's good to have you here. I'll take a moment to tell you more uh, about a most interesting and accomplished individual. Uh, Boyd Kennard was born in Mississippi and received his MS degree from Millsap College and our BS degree and then the MS from University from Mississippi State University. And he has a Ph.D. in fisheries. He's a fish behavior special has a fish behavior specialty from the University of Washington in Seattle, where he studied three spine sticklebacks. He went on to study desert pupfish in Arizona and Mexico, and started the fisheries program at the University of Arizona in Tucson in the early 1970s. In 1978, he moved to New England to the University of Massachusetts in Amherst and began studying the migratory fish life history and fish passage in the Connecticut and Merrimack Rivers, with a focus on American shad and the short-nosed sturgeon. It was his effort to build a research lab for migratory fish on the Connecticut River, which U.S. Representative Sylvia Oconte supported and obtained the funding for what becomes today the Sylvia Oconte Adramus Fish Research Center. Dr. Kennard is an authority on sturgeon behavior and passage, having studied all species in North America and four foreign species, three in Asia and one in Russia. During the past 15 years, he has assisted with research on migratory fish and fish passage at the hydroelectric dams in the big rivers in China, uh, Brazil, and at, at the head, yeah, in Brazil, the headwaters of the Amazon, and the Danube River in Romania. Dr. Kennard is assisting all these countries to build a lab to study the migratory fish. Romania dedicated the Danube River Lab in June. Dr. Kennard is retired from the U.S. Department of Interior, USGS, in 2007, and he now has a private business, BK Riverfish, in Amherst, Massachusetts. Uh, Boyd, it's great to have you here. And so in 1978, you moved up to the University of Massachusetts in Amherst, and you checked out the river in your own backyard, and what did you find? Well, when I was in Arizona in 
I um, I never had a study site uh, for desert fish that was closer than a four-hour drive. And I moved to Amherst, and I just couldn't believe it. I thought it was a pig that had fallen into uh, a, a wonderful habitat because <laughs> only two blocks from my house, there was this wonderful little river named the Fort River that had no dams on it. And so a fish could go all the way down the Fort River, enter the Connecticut River, which was the main river that it flowed into, and then go all the way down to Long Island Sound in the Atlantic Ocean and not have to worry but one dam, and that's Holyoke Dam in the Connecticut River. So the Fort River had no dams on it. That's amazing, considering there's like 3,000 dams in Massachusetts on various rivers. Absolutely. This is the only tributary of the Connecticut River in Massachusetts with no dams. This is the only one. (laughs) (laughs) So here I am two blocks from it. (laughs) Well, last time I saw you, you were standing in the Fort River trying to recover a lamprey that had jumped out of a uh, aquarium tank and had... You you knew where to look, apparently. (laughs) Well, we have, uh, for the last two years, we've had a a Fort River Festival, which is a wonderful coming together of uh, the local uh, nature conservancy groups and uh, the federal Fish and Wildlife Service, the town of Amherst, and some private NGO groups to celebrate the Fort River. And this was started by Rushing Rivers, uh, an NGO. And uh, and so I was participating in that with my knowledge of, of the sea lamprey and its relationship to the, the river ecosystem. And, and we had found an early, an early adult that had come up. Uh, and so this was in May of last year. And um, we were very fortunate to find even one because uh, very few had been passed upstream uh, of the Holyoke Dam by that time, and so losing that fish was was a was a was a really traumatic event because <laughs> no. I, I didn't expect to find one. I didn't expect to have one at all. Yeah, but you were saying that they avoid light, so you knew where to look. Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. We know where know where to look when they when these adults, uh, the pre spawning males and females, come in, which is, is in April and and May, mostly in May. Uh, they move upstream almost entirely at night. Uh, they're very photonegative, and during the daytime, they find the deepest place that they can uh, to get away from the light. And so, and then they just remain there. And then, when it gets about dusk, then they start to move on upstream again. Uh, later on, as their bodies degenerate, because all these fish are going to die after they spawn, so they, this process of of system degeneration has has really already started, uh, and so their eyes gradually, gradually, gradually over a period of few weeks, uh, they become less uh, responsive to light, and they will migrate upstream in the daytime. And you can see them in the daytime out spawning and make a wonderful uh, place or wonderful animal to to take a look at uh, that you hardly ever see. You just find them in shallow water in small rivers, and the water. There they are. They're doing everything, everything, all their intimate behavior. This would be late June, or this would be in June, and it can be anywhere in the Fort River. It can be anywhere uh, from the first to the twenty-second of June. That's uh, that's the range of dates that we have them spawning over twenty-two years. 
you were telling me that if you um, look inside of the fish, there's a dramatic change from the lamprey when it's in the ocean versus when it's spawning in the Fort River. Yeah, it's uh, it's just like Pacific salmon uh, that are also going to die after they spawn. Uh, while the sea lampreys, uh, several months, three or four months, uh, while they're still out in salt water, their entire stomach and all the associated organs all shrink and down to just the size of, of a pencil lead. The stomach is literally the diameter of a pencil lead. And that entire internal body cavity now is filled with either ovaries or testes, their reproductive organs. And so these males and females literally become, become uh, gametes, you know, two-foot-long gametes migrating up the, up the, uh, through the last part of their seaweed migration and into, uh, into a river to spawn. And then tell us about their nest-building behaviors. Well, it's just... Uh, it's one of the most remarkable things that goes on in in small streams. Uh, people tend to think of beavers as the major uh, engineer in in small streams, and and they certainly do uh, change rivers uh, and streams uh, by their by their building of dams. But the second most important uh, engineer in small streams are sea lampreys because. They, they get together at the heads of riffles, and they dig a big hole. And what they do is they, they have this suctorial mouth that they use in their parasitic phase right, when they're out in the sea, sucking on to the sides of fish and, and sucking their bodily fluids out. And so they use this same suctorial mouth when they get in these small streams to grab a hold of boulders, up to about six inches uh, in diameter, and and violently, just violently, dragging them downstream and making a big pile of rocks. And so after they've got this hole with this pile of rocks, it's just downstream. Then that they have to literally collaborate. Is the spawning oh, yeah. They have to work together somehow to. They work together. Yeah. Or oh, you will see a male grab a hold of one. If he can't move it, they'll move everything else, all the smaller ones, down, and then there'll be one or two big ones. And you will often see the male and the female both grabbing hold of that rock and trying to move it downstream and pile it in there. And so when they get ready to spawn, they have this very nice hole that they can, uh, that they can spawn in where the flow is very reduced. And so the, the male sperm gets a long contact with the eggs. And so then after fertilization occurs, these eggs go zoop, just right downstream into this big pile of rocks, which protects them from predators. Brilliant. How cool is that? And and then the um, what they what they're doing to the river bottom is that helpful for other fish? Well, it's it, again. So they they have now they they'll be in a in a typical typical head of the riffle in the Fort River. There'll be five or six of these reds. So in other words, there'll be pairs of fish uh, and five or six of these reds building it. And so what they do, they create these undulating forms, bottom bed forms. So you'll look at the bottom, and, and instead of being flat across it, no, it's not flat at all. It undulates up and down, up and down, up and down. So it's, they've created a, a totally different bed form than is there uh, naturally, uh, and so that that causes creates different habitats for for the invertebrates, creates all different kinds of flows, 
And also, interestingly enough, around these spawning sites, uh, the native fish gathered just downstream of these rock piles and, and even into the hole of the red itself and, uh, and will feed on the eggs. And so right from, right from the spawning, these, these guys are contributing to the, the local native fauna uh, fish that, that live in the river. Uh, Boyd, we're going to take a short break and be back to learn more about the natural history of a lamprey that leaves environments better off than it finds it uh, after this break. This is the Green Talk Network, helping to provide a sustainable future for us all. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. For decades, we've been made aware of environmental issues such as climate change, overpopulation, and habitat destruction. How can we stay engaged and active in helping to prevent these issues from becoming insurmountable problems for our children and beyond? Tune in to The Earth Guardian. Each week, Sherilyn Viteze will cover the issues and discuss what is being done and how you can make a difference without too much effort to improve the quality of life for everyone on Earth. Tune in Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Green Talk Network. Two views, different topics, questions, answers, news, and advice. You'll want to check out Ecoman and the Skeptic live from Philadelphia University. Every week, join hosts Rob Fleming and Chris Pastor as they tackle a different topic on sustainability. You'll hear all sides of the issue supported by guests who provide valuable insights. Get ready to be engaged, educated, and entertained when you tune into Ecoman and the Skeptic. Broadcast live every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Green Talk network keep listening to the green talk network for the latest in the sustainability and green movement for all of our futures today and tomorrow the green talk network spread the green you're 
listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're talking about lampreys and sturgeon uh, with Dr. Boyd Kennard, and I cut him off when he was, and in cutting him off, I, I mentioned that, uh, or he was explaining to us how the uh, lampreys uh, contribute to the environment, right, by restructuring the bottom? Correct. And, and, um, and that actually these guys... I, we all should take a lesson from these guys, from lampreys, and and try to leave the environment better off than we find it. How do they leave the environment better off than they find it? Well, th- these guys, as I was saying before, right from the spawning act, which many of those eggs are eaten by native uh, fish, the the fish that other fish species of fish that live in the river. Uh, they make a major contribution in, from that stage on because after these eggs hatch, they turn into larvae. And these larvae are like little worms, and they burrow in the bottom of the river, only coming out at night, and they stay there for four to five years. And so when they come out at night, they serve as forage for all the other fish that are in the river. And ultimately, when those adults die, they... When they leave the river, they're about the size of a fountain pen uh, and mm. enter the river. When they come back, they weigh uh, two pounds, and they're about 28 to 30 inches long. And so after those guys die, they, their bodies contribute all these marine-derived nutrients and minerals that they've gathered out in the ocean from predating other fish out there. Uh, they, they, all these minerals and nutrients go right into the small river ecosystems, taken up by the plants, taken up by the, by the phytoplankton, taken up by everything that, uh, that needs nutrients there. So they make a major, a major contribution to the, to the productivity of these small river ecosystems. Uh, particularly in the headwaters, because these fish will go all the way up to where the the water is only six inches deep and four feet wide, and they will build a red there. So in the very highest headwaters, uh, they make a major contribution to productivity. That's right. You were saying that they don't eat on their way up, that they are completely carrying, you know, carbon that was collected down in the ocean and uh, bringing it inland. Uh, That's amazing. Now, and, how do and they, rare, how do they find the rivers and elements that you know we just don't we just don't have in these small New England streams? We just don't have it there. Yeah. Don't have what? A boron and a lot of these, you know. Oh, some rare of the elements minerals. they find in the ocean. Yeah. Are you now find them in the soils of New England, of the upper headwaters, and exactly. they can only get there by the fish. By the uh, fish bringing it in. You, yeah. You mentioned one was boron, which is. Uh, important for making computers today and stuff. But <laughs> <laughs> We're not going to go mining yet for boron around the streams no. of headwaters. But, uh, no. yeah, it's just an amazing combination of chemicals out there that are brought up. Now, um, how does a lamprey um, find a river to um, return to? Well, this is a most interesting 
uh, and unique uh, phenomena. Lampreys, adult lampreys, uh, smell these larvae that are in the, the streams that have, lampreys have spawned in in previous years, and the streams with the strongest odors from the larvae, in other words, the ones that have the most larvae, have the strongest odors coming out their mouth, most of these adults will turn into those rivers. So it's not like a natal homing to a home river that you find in, in salmon. It's a totally different a mechanism for finding and returning to uh, a stream. Long Island sounds a long way from Amherst, Massachusetts. Yes, it is. <laughs> it certainly is. <laughs> yes. Those guys have a pretty good chemoreceptors or something. They do. And, and, and this, this has all been developed by studying uh, the parasitic lampreys in the landlock, that are landlocked into the Great Lakes. Yes. So this this mechanism has been uh, initially found there, and now it's been verified uh, in in Long Island Sound by our our Atlantic uh, Sea Run lampreys, which are not parasitic when they when they enter fresh water like the landlocked ones are. That's right. They're on a starvation yeah. diet to go yeah. breed. Yeah, they're exactly. swimming gametes. Here they come. They really only contribute to the river ecosystems along the Atlantic coast. They don't. They don't take away anything. Amazing, just yeah. remarkable. So then we have the Connecticut River, and uh, you arrived in Amherst just after I graduated from Hampshire College. Uh-huh. Left the area, but when I was there, there was talk about these landlocked salmon conveniently living next to UMass, pretty much. <laughs> now, is that true? Uh, landlocked salmon, the ones that are in the Reservoir? The sturgeon. Oh, the sturgeon. Oh, oh, the, oh, the sturgeon. Uh, well, those, those sturgeons, uh, were not, they thought they were landlocked back in the 70s. Um, and we studied them for, and still study them. And after about 15 years, we finally, with all our life history movements, uh, tracking these fish that were above the above Holyoke Dam, below Holyoke Dam, displacing fish from below the dam, above the dam, see what they would do. We concluded that uh, no, there was not a landlocked population. There was a dam-locked population, and with a dam right in the center of its river range, and and that's so that's what you have, and that's been verified with genetic comparisons of the sturgeons above the dam and below the dam. Uh, so, well, I was impressed, uh, Boyd, that uh, when you arrived, you took the time to look below the dam to see if there was some surgeon there, as opposed to just celebrating the fact that they were above the dam. And uh, this is so often the case, is that people make assumptions without ever going out and looking in nature. And it's so important to listen locally to people, because they're often observing things that is not yet in the science literature. Oh, that's, that's true, true words were never spoken. So tell us about the uh, life history of the sturgeon of the Connecticut River. Well, it would take a lot longer than this program to go through the details. <laughs> okay. I will give you the supernatant. Uh, it's a population of about 1,500 adults. should be about ten to 12,000 based on the size of, of other northern populations like this. But uh, the Holyoke Dam prevents uh, females and males from that grow up in in the rich, productive 
estuary of the Connecticut River prevents them from getting back up to their natal spawning area. The natal spawning area is above the dam. The, the fish passage facilities at Holyoke Dam were not not designed for passing sturgeon, and so um, so this is this is a big problem that has to be overcome in in the future uh, to get these fish that are below the dam and allow them to go back upstream and spawn. Because right now the total population is sustained totally by the spawning of about 250 adults that are above the dam. Mm. Yeah, so that's it's a. Uh, it's the only, it's the only dam-locked population of short nose that we have in the northeast. But there is another dam-locked population in the south, in the Santee Cooper River, uh, where they built uh, several dams, and they have ex- seem to have exactly the same situation as we have. So it's not uncommon that short nose sturgeon will, uh, uh, if you build a dam in the middle of their range. Uh, they often have an upstream foraging, wintering, and the only spawning area, and that's what we have. And so then that whole lower part of the river is just used for foraging and wintering. But these are remarkably resilient fish. Uh, If you've been around for 60 to 100 million years old, you must have a few things right. (laughs) <laughs> and and uh, these guys are incredibly flexible and and adaptable. Um, they are are true wonders of survival. They just they are. Yeah. I mean, they survived the Connecticut River, had uh, such high levels, and the Merrimack to such high levels of pollution uh, that one can hardly believe that they survived that. But they did. They survived that. And when I first came here back in the late 70s, uh, we were finding high incidence of tumors on the fish that we would capture then. And now mm. you go out and we capture fish every year, hundreds of fish every year, adults every year, and look at them. And it's very rare to see a tumor at all. And so that generation of sturgeons that was the adults back in the late 70s, they got all their pollution back in the 40s and 50s. And so those guys are all dead now. So we have a new generation of short-nosed sturgeon out there that is, has been a great beneficiary of the Clean Water Act, along with all the other life forms that live in the river. Well, that's a real tribute to the people of the Connecticut River watershed who have taken actions not to pollute so much. That's exactly right. That and the federal law that made, that yeah, that made you do it, the, too. All but. the towns, all, but the towns had to come up with money to do that, uh, to connect up to the sewers also. So it's, it's a really big deal. It's a total effort by federal, just the way it should be, federal, state, yeah. and local, all the way down. People who want to make a difference, that's the first thing you can do, is just don't throw stuff you wouldn't want to eat into the watershed or into the rivers. Yeah, um, when uh, years ago it was very common to see people changing their oil or dumping their oil and stuff like that in in the rivers you just don't that just isn't done this day. it's not socially acceptable anymore well good for the people of the pioneer valley and connecticut river valley and stuff yeah um we're going to um, move over to the merrimack river and uh we only have a minute or two before the break but let's start talking about the Merrimack. You've been uh, studying some sturgeon there for quite some time. Yes, I've uh, been studying sturgeon there with uh, a colleague, Micah Kiefer, who was my graduate student on the initial study of the Merrimack River. 
And now we're back over there after an absence of 15 years. And um, there is a small population of short-nosed sturgeon in the Merrimack River. We were the first to document that. And, okay, Boyd, uh, I'm going to have to interrupt you, and we'll be right back with Boyd Kennard. listening to the Green Talk Network for the latest in the sustainability and green movement for all of our futures, today and tomorrow. The Green Talk Network. Spread the green. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Sustainable design is a term that has become commonplace as we strive to improve our quality of life and at the same time do our best to be good to our environment. Where can we turn for answers? Tune in each week for Savvy Structures and Sustainable Living with Dr. Lisa Whiplinger. Our program is a practical guide to living better and living in harmony with our surroundings. Topics range from architecture to water resources and community building. Savvy Structures and Sustainable Living, broadcasting live every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Eastern, 7 a.m. Pacific on the Green Talk Network. It's football, pop culture, and everything in between. Get ready for the game plan with Anthony Heron, a.k.a. Big Ant. Anthony has a background in college and professional football and brings the player, coach, and broadcaster perspective to this weekly roundup of the top sports news and events. Big Ant wants to hear from you, too. Tune in to the game plan with Anthony Heron every Tuesday afternoon at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific time on the Voice America Sports Channel. It's game time. Thank you for listening to the Green Talk Network. Help to spread the green by involving your family and friends. You're doing your part. Now help them think green. Spread the green. The Green Talk Network. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're talking with 
fish behavior biologist, Dr. Boyd Kennard, about the sturgeon fish that are swimming as we speak in the Merrimack River. And Dr. Kennard was saying that he has a team that's been researching, and you said you've, you've, you're working with a population there. Yes, there's a small population. We discovered it back in 1989 and did an initial four-year study on it. came up with population estimate of about 65 adults, identified that there is indeed a population with, identified the spawning area, characterized that, identified the foraging areas, wintering areas, so all the critical habitats that the uh, protective agencies are interested in, we, we identified it. And so we just went back two years ago. Uh, National the, Fisheries excuse Service. Excuse me for a sec. These are the, you're only finding the short-nosed, or is it both short-nosed and Atlantic sturgeon? Uh, short-nosed is the only one that has a population there. Atlantic sturgeon, the very large, that grows to be a very large size, uh, it, uh, they were extirpated by overfishing back in the early part of the 20th century, just like they were in the Connecticut River. Uh, and so there are no populations of Atlantic sturgeon, although juvenile Atlantic sturgeon, fish that are four or five feet long, uh, come into the lower part of the Merrimack River and the Connecticut River and forage during the summer. Uh, cool. Yeah, yeah, but there are no populations there. But they're there. They, they, they're there every year, and they're catching quite a few of them, actually, uh, by accident in, uh, in the Merrimack. And we're doing uh, pop-up satellite tag studies on these Atlantics and on some of these short-nosed. Uh, because we no one knows what their uh, home range is. Nobody knows uh, where these fish are from or where they're going to spawn. They're talking about the Atlantic sturgeon. Right, where, where the Atlantic spawn yeah. is. Atlantic yeah. sturgeon is a big mystery. Well, they they go through, Atlantic sturgeon go through this and during their, uh, most of their juvenile phase. Uh, after they leave their their home river where they're born when they're about two or three years old, they're not going to spawn until they get eight to ten years old. So during that interim period of four, five, six, seven uh, years of age, these fish are coastal wanderers. They're just wandering along the coastline, wandering along the coastline, feeding, some of them coming into the mouths of rivers, others just migrating along the coast. And so we're putting pop-up satellite tags on those fish mm. to determine you know, what their movements are and where they're going to go back to spawn. Okay, so back to the Merrimack short-nosed sturgeon. Mm-hmm. And so what we found, <laughs> this is hot off the press, uh, we did some telemetry, uh, put some telemetry, acoustic telemetry tags on uh, females, short-nosed sturgeon that had eggs that would be spawned this spring. We put these tags on these fish last fall, and they overwintered in the Merrimack River, they foraged in the Merrimack River, and then this spring... To our great surprise, two of these females left the river and one week later appeared in Saco River, Maine. So that's quite a distance, but that's a whole nother watershed. Oh my gosh! It's a whole nother. It's a whole nother extension. No one really knew that there was any connection between the Merrimack River and other rivers in the Gulf of Maine. But it would appear that we have fish from the Gulf of Maine, adults from the Gulf of Maine that are coming down the coast and foraging in the Merrimack River. It gives, it gives me chills, because we think we understand nature. And there we are standing on the banks of the Merrimack going, these are the fish of the Merrimack. And the, to those fish, they could belong to two or more watersheds. 
you're that that would seem to be that would seem to be uh, a very highly probable uh, scenario. Uh, it'll take another year probably to flesh all this out, but um, but certainly to have one third of the females that we tagged last spring uh, to go to a different river uh, that, <laughs> that's that's not an accident. Uh, so there's something going on there, and we'll be continuing this work with funding from National Marine Fisheries Service. It's just amazing. So tell us more about these um, about these ocean want. I guess there's there are two kinds, or there's a continuum of types of Andromeda's fish, uh, from ocean wandering to you know uh, the salmon. I guess. Yeah. Yeah, there's sturgeons all over the, all over the world. Um, all north north temperate countries have have sturgeons, and and they they all seem to do pretty much the same thing. They go through this freshwater spawning, and then often the uh, the juveniles will move down the river, move into the ocean, and go through a period of foraging, just like salmon, and then come back as adults. Um, Short-nosed sturgeon are really not a fully anadromous fish. They're, they are uh, mostly a riverine fish and spend most of their lives in fresh water, but they do have uh, a requirement to go down to salt water during some phase in their life to get probably, we think, hypothesis is, to get minerals that are only available in the sea. Uh, mm. And mm. so... So that landlocked population or dam-locked population in the Connecticut River, if you look at them relative to the fish that are upstream, uh, the, the dam-locked population compared with the downstream population, the downstream population or downstream group, not a population, they're much larger. Their scutes are more well-developed because there's more calcium. They, have it, they can get it in the estuary and also get all those other minerals that they need for growth and development of, of scutes and bones that you just can't get upstream in fresh water. Yeah. That's remarkable. You can see the difference oh, you above and below clearly, the Holyoke Dam there clearly between those two it. subpopulations. Clearly see it, both in growth and in, and in the development of, of structures that require calcium and other minerals. Uh, you do so much remarkable work in so many areas. Um, you know, this, this is enough right now we've been talking about, but you're often far overseas. And I understand that I appreciate you taking time from your busy schedule today to talk with us. Uh, what's going on today in the Conti Lab and, and with your travels and stuff? Well, I've got two Chinese scientists there from uh, the East China Sea Research Institute um, in Shanghai. They are at the Conti Lab, and we've been working for about a month trying to uh, develop methods, attachment methods, uh, to use these uh, small pop-up satellite tags uh, to place on Chinese sturgeon, juvenile Chinese sturgeon, as they come down and leave the river and enter the salt water. We don't know where they're going to go. Uh, and uh, this is uh, really the first time anybody has tried to uh, develop techniques for attaching these pop-up satellite tags to, to fish this small. These fish are about a pound, and are about uh, 16, 18 inches long. And so we, we have our work cut out for us. We're having some success and some failures, but we haven't given up yet. So I've got and these uh, are tags that are so big that have to uh, 
come off the fish for you to pick up the signal from or to recover or something? Yeah, well, these are tags that will stay on the fish for a program length of time. You program them for however long you want them to stay on there, and then they automatically detach. So if you want them to stay on there for six months, uh, then they'll detach and come off the fish. And while they're on the fish, they've been recording geolocation, so you can get latitude and longitude. They've been recording temperature. They've been recording water depth. And so from the geolocation information, this comes back and all this data is processed, and you basically have a tracking map of where the fish has been uh, every couple of hours uh, wow. for six months. You're really you're learning so much now about, you know, so much these days about the life history of these animals that you couldn't do back in the 70s. Just well, remarkable. Yeah, it's uh, a lot of this feel. A lot of this feel uh, studies on movements of fish. It's just been a revolution with telemetry, which started back in the 1970s with with acoustic telemetry, and then went to radio telemetry, and now we're moving into pop-up satellite telemetry, a tag that a fish just carries around, and you don't have to be there to to determine its location with an, either an antenna or a hydrophone in the case of acoustic or, or radio telemetry. So, so you know, uh, biologists are very adaptive, just like these sturgeons. Uh, new technology comes along, and we will snatch it and grab it and try to use it to, to learn more about our fish. Always asking questions, always experimenting. Always. Uh, we, we are going to run out of time, and I'd love to know more about your work in the China Sea and on the Danube River and at the headwaters of the Amazon. Might you be able to join us on the next episode of this uh, broadcast? It would be my pleasure. Well, that's great because um, this is, you know, this is just scratching. This is, well, this is digging deep into a local area, and now it would be great to come, you know, have you come back and tell us more uh, next time on uh, Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles. Uh, Boyd, I want to thank you for taking this time today for um, so much information, such remarkable fish, the sturgeon and the lamprey. Always glad to talk about two of my favorite friends. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So after the break, thank you, Boyd. After the break, uh, Mike Dunmire is going to join us from from Ocean Champions, and he's going to be giving us an update on uh, the new on the political news of uh, Gulf of, of Mexico uh, BP oil spill disaster, and how that relates to what's happening on Capitol Hill. Talk Network is here. Spread the green. All together now. All together now. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and 
ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. When planning for the future, we need to look at all the facets, environmental, humanitarian, and social. There are so many challenges that we face in keeping everything straight and environmentally sound. That's where the deliberacy, taking deliberate actions to benefit all, comes in. Join your host, author Christopher Eldridge, every weekend for a look at the missing cornerstone that is lacking in the solutions to the challenges we face every day. Listen Saturdays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Green Talk Network. If you hear a dog barking or an angel singing, then you know that you are listening to Waking Up in America. Heard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific Time, Valerie Kirkard and all of her friends will bring you powerful and humorous discussions that raise thoughts and give you insight on how to live your life to its fullest potential. Adventure is always a must on Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific. The Green Talk Network is here. Spread the green. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're back with Mike Dunmeyer from Ocean Champions. Hi, Mike. Hey, hey Rob. Uh, so tell us some more about the, or tell us something about the, the, the policy and politics of this British petroleum oil disaster spill in the Gulf of Mexico. Well, it's, it's really interesting, isn't it? And, you know, without getting too much into what's going on, because people are pretty familiar with that, you know, 210... Yeah thousand gallons of oil spewing out there every day at a point where we uh, don't seem to have the technology to be able to do anything about it quickly. Um, you know, uh, habitat being destroyed, fish, marine mammals, etc. Uh, it's just devastating and heartbreaking. And people kind of wonder, how did, how did we get to this point? And, and we forget that it was back in 2008 when gas prices hit four bucks a gallon that really it was the American voter uh, that changed its position, saying, you know, we need to drill, uh, even though it was mistaken to, to believe that that would lower gas prices, that we need to drill our way out of this problem uh, and put pressure, in, and, and thus you had both Democratic and Republican uh, congressmen shifting their position and then ending the moratorium on new drilling. Uh, so, 2008, that's shocking. Yeah, and, and so we seem to be set down this, down this path, and, uh, you know, what, what's What's going on in the Gulf right now, it's just awful, but maybe, and I think what a lot of groups are hoping for now is that the one good thing that might come from it is that we could, again, change the political winds on this and get back to, uh, you know, uh, a ban on new offshore drilling as a result. 
Um, I just saw a poll, though. It's kind of interesting. Still, 55% of the people polled support more offshore drilling, and 21% of them, both Democrats and Republicans, said that as a result of the spill, they actually support it more. And uh, that's a that, that's a thought process I just don't understand, but but it's out there, and it really underscores how we need to continue beating on this on this item uh, to raise awareness and and really uh, we're, we're hopeful that we still can change people's opinions. But uh, you know, in in the midst of of all that's going on, we think it's important to remember uh, that there were a number of congressmen out there, uh, many of them uh, our champions, who did not reverse their position, who continue continued to fight against expanded offshore drilling and do so today. Um, you know, for example, Kathy Castor uh, in Florida, Alan, Alan Boyd also in Florida, um, uh, Sam Farr out in California, and uh, Lois Capps. All of these folks have been consistent voices uh, against offshore drilling, as well as uh, Senator Nelson down in Florida. Um, and uh, Ocean Champions just recently endorsed uh, three of our existing champions who are running for re-election this time uh, who have been consistent voices against offshore drilling and are really leading the charge right now. Uh, and that's uh, Congressman Markey, Pallone, and Holt. Um, uh, Pallone and Holt, uh, you may have seen, Rob. Uh, Pallone just introduced a bill that would ban all offshore drilling. Holt just introduced a bill on the House side to hold big oil fully accountable for any spill cleanup. Um, the existing liability cap is only $75 million per... Bravo! Company. Yeah, it's ridiculous. You you could spend that in a day in, in Louisiana in an estuary, right? I mean, bravo, the introduction of the bills by Pallone uh, oh, yeah. and Holt. In, indeed. So, yeah, and Holt raises that liability cap to $10 billion, uh, and that's gotten a lot of publicity. Um, Markey, of course, has always pushed for uh, renewable energy, and clean tech is the way that we're going to end our dependence on uh, on foreign oil. And his climate bill passing in the House was kind of the strongest uh, uh, statement on that uh, on that path yet. So we think it's important. Again, you know, elections matter. Who you have in there matters, and having people with the courage to take these positions, despite what the public might be saying, is very, very important. Well, it's early to say as any, you know benefit to this oil disaster, but um, it takes something dramatic to make people change their behaviors. You know, we did not want to give up burning wood until we could find no more wood and ship to coal, and, and uh, perhaps this will, will be the, the impetus and the attention, especially when pictures of oiled birds and wildlife start rolling in and stuff that can make people, you know, become political and call for a change in our energy and, and, and not to... Uh, continue this uh, drinking of the oil fountain. Yeah, indeed, and, and because this looks like it's going to go on for some time, uh, we can't let people forget, and hopefully more and more opinions will change, you know, sadly, as this gets worse and worse. Um, but in, in a related uh, issue, Robbie, you probably saw today that the, the Senate climate bill is going to be introduced. Yeah, that's surprising. Everyone's saying, oh, you can't do it now, but why is that? Well, I think, you know, the, uh, the, the third of the triumvirate, you had Kerry Lieberman and then Senator Graham from South Carolina. Graham dropped out ostensibly because of the immigration issue coming up, but also because, in his words, uh, this oil spill happening in the Gulf just creates a situation where the, the, the climate bill cannot pass. Um, but there are a number of people, including Kerry and Lieberman, who are proceeding forward without Graham, uh, who think that actually... The reverse is true, that the political uh, uh, 
landscape is going to be challenging, but that as uh, opinions shape over time, this this oil spill does nothing, you know, if it does nothing else, it really highlights the need to have uh, a clean energy plan and start to invest heavily down that path so that we can get to a point where we don't have this as a risk. Well, it'd be good if environmentalists started sounding like outraged as Tea Party people are outraged. And there's a good reason to be outraged with this, what's happening to the Gulf of Mexico. Indeed. So this sounds Indeed. like good timing. Yeah, and, and so what people will see is, is this climate bill, uh, it does some good things. It, it starts, uh, it establishes a cap of 17% to be reached by 2020, ups it to uh, 42% by uh, 2030 and 83% by 2050. That's good. It establishes a price for carbon so that you can actually have investment in clean tech, but it does some things to limit speculation. Uh, the negative, though, a lot of us were hoping that the bill might include a ban on offshore drilling in response to what's going on in the Gulf. Not surprisingly, it, it didn't. The political realities just aren't there yet. But what's really important right now is that uh, this is just a starting point. Lieberman himself said, hey, we're just putting this out there. The negotiations have to begin. And so this is where, as you mentioned, environmentalists need to have their voice heard. They need to become like Tea Partiers and continue to apply the pressure to their senator, and maybe we can get it out. Uh, you know, the question then is how does it pass, but let's cross that bridge. At the very least, let's push for much tighter provisions than are there in the bill right now. I will say the good thing is it does include it gives neighboring states the ability to veto uh, offshore drilling plans by states that would impact them. So, for example, it looks like New Jersey would be able to shut down Virginia's plan. So that's positive, but we'd like to get stronger provisions, anti-drilling provisions in there, so it's time to speak up. If people listening believe in speaking up like this, it's really important that, um, that you go to oceanchampions.org and, and join in the concerted efforts that you guys are doing, because Ocean Champions has really taken, has built the relationships with the politicians, and now to have uh, individuals speaking to their, their, to their senators and congressmen through Ocean Champions is, is really, really effective. Absolutely. We've got an action page. 1,500 letters have been sent to senators already. We encourage people to handwrite letters and also to call their senators, and we'll have that information available as well. It does make a difference, and, uh, uh, you know, be vocal, <laughs> be large in number, and let's see what we can get. At the end of the day, we really do need a climate bill, and this might be the last good chance. Let's see how good we can make that bill. Absolutely. Time is of the essence. And as you were saying in an earlier broadcast, when the, uh, the harmful algal bloom red tide bill was whipped by the Republicans and defeated, uh, people wrote to Ocean Champions and, and, and those were conveyed to people, to the politicians, and they reintroduced the bill on the floor within days and passed it. So people really make a difference speaking out from their little corners of the country. Yep, absolutely. And you know, lobby your neighbors too. <laughs> If uh, you got friends around you that uh, are in that 55% saying it's, it's time to keep on drilling, then talk to them about the fact that uh, we use 25% of the world's oil, but we only have 3% of it. So mathematically, we just can't drill our way out of this. We've got to have clean energy as a solution. Got to have clean energy. That's a great summary point. Mike Dunmire, OceanChampions.org. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you, Rob. That's it for Moyers Environmental Dialogues. Ocean River Shields of Achilles. Until next time, thanks for listening.
Thanks again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on the Green Talk Network. We'll talk again then. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Green Talk Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit thegreentalknetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.